0: You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Companies that are open or sell to the public, such as restaurants, retailers, office buildings, and distributors, may be wondering whether there's any risk of personal injury claims stemming from COVID-19. In fact, cases are already being litigated and more could be on the way. They adapt existing theories of premises and product liability to new facts. Sustaining a personal injury claim is more complicated than just proving someone got sick. But the risk to businesses is real. As the global pandemic continues, smart organizations should understand the law and how it's evolving. Today on the Harris Beach podcast, Senior Counsel Dan Strecker from the Mass Torts and Industry-Wide Litigation Practice discusses personal injury liability in the age of COVID-19. Dan, thanks for being with us today. I'd like to start with some context. COVID-19 really took us all by surprise can a business owner or landlord really have liability for something that not even our brightest healthcare minds saw coming? I mean, if the doctors couldn't predict it, how could uh, say a shoe store owner? Can you explain how this works under the law?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Ben, you're right. On on the macro level, this pandemic wasn't foreseeable, but in a lawsuit, the court's going to look at what was foreseeable to the defendant after the pandemic began. So We could see, say, a premises liability case arising from this, the plaintiff claiming they became ill from COVID-19 while present at the defendant's premises, like a retail store, a restaurant, an office building. Alternatively, we could see a product liability case in which the plaintiff claims that contact with a contaminated product made them ill. So, for example, food delivered by a restaurant or a package received from an online retailer. This court in these cases is going to ask whether the defendants created or had notice of a specific condition they had reason to believe could lead to infection, or they might ask whether the defendant failed to comply with laws enacted or guidelines developed in response to this broader risk. But relevant to your question, the level of awareness expected from a business in February 2020, when the pandemic began, will be lower than what's expected now in early 2021 when this pandemic and its risks have really become almost a fact of life. Oh, I see. That, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Um, so what would someone need to prove in order to show that they were infected at a particular time or a particular place? Who has the burden of proof?
1: Importantly, the burden is going to be the plaintiffs. The plaintiff's going to have to show something more than correlation in time more than that the illness followed the contact with the product or the contact with the premises. The courts say that that alone is speculation. It's a pretty longstanding rule, and we can see it in cases applying questions that would be similar to those you'd see in the COVID-19 case. So there was a 1977 California appellate ruling called MINDER. California is a well-known tort hotspot. And the plaintiffs in Minder ate at the local restaurant and became sick. Their only evidence that their meal made them sick was the fact that it occurred before the illness. On appeal, the court held this was not enough. This was speculation and conjecture. And the appellate court reversed the verdict for plaintiffs and ordered a new trial. There's another case from New York, another one of the hotspot jurisdictions. It's called Dolenti, and it was from 1994. The plaintiff there claimed that a can of beans that she purchased from defendant's supermarket made her sick. But the only evidence in that case tying the illness to the can of beans was the fact that she ate it before she became sick. So on appeal, again, the court reversed. The court actually said that this was just speculation and conjecture and granted summary judgment to the defendant dismissing the lawsuit. So if we we think about those principles, we can apply them to a similar scenario that you might see in a COVID-related product or premises liability case. Say the plaintiff becomes sick after visiting uh, the defendant's business or handling a product that the defendant supplied. If the plaintiff has nothing more than this sequence of events to tie their illness to the defendant, they can't prevail. Instead, the plaintiff's going to have to point to some specific evidence that makes it more likely than not. In that California case, Minder, some examples were given. These included that other persons also became ill or specific test results showing the virus was actually present at the premises or on the product. I see. I see. And
0: sounds like it brings up the whole you know, discussion of um, the differences between correlation and causation, right? What's that old sign? Signed correlation is not Necessarily causation, or maybe it's the other way around, but but that makes it a little more hmm I see. And so, you know, from a defense standpoint, Dan, what are um, some of the principal defenses against liability claims in this context?
1: So I'll break it down into premises and product liability cases. In a premises case, such as what an office building or a retailer might face, notice is going to be critical. A general awareness such as knowing that the pandemic exists is not going to be enough. The plan is gonna to have to show that the defendant was aware of a specific risk of COVID-19. So for a retailer or an office building, that could include a sick employee known to have been at work. And courts are gonna consider notice in light of all the circumstances. So courts are gonna expect more from businesses now than they would have expected from a business, say, in February 2020, when this was all very new. A a COVID-19 product liability case could, uh, for example, arise against an online retailer distributing allegedly contaminated packages or products or against another delivery business like a restaurant. In product liability actions, unlike premises actions, the plaintiff doesn't have to prove notice but the plaintiff still has to link their illness to the product they got from defendant. And importantly, they're going to have to prove that when it left defendant's hands, it was contaminated. So for example, this is the rule in Illinois, which is another one of those hotspots. In the Tiffin case, which was an Illinois Supreme Court case in 1959, the plaintiff purchased a grocery store ham, ate it, became sick and died from a foodborne illness. Testing later confirmed that a key bacteria was actually present on the ham, and several other persons who ate that same ham became sick. So remember, we talked about the Minder case and some examples that the court gave. These were actually included in the examples given there. Plaintiff's widow got a judgment against the grocery store after a trial. Even so, despite this evidence on appeal, that judgment was reversed and a new trial was ordered. The Supreme Court noted that the ham was kept at plaintiff's home for several days and had been refrigerated, then reheated and refrigerated again. Under this circumstance, the court said, it was equally plausible that the bacteria arose after it left the store's possession, not before. On that evidence alone, the court held that the jury's finding for plaintiff was speculative. We could see something similar potentially arising in a product liability claim for COVID-19 infection. Imagine a package or other delivery reaching the plaintiff and then the plaintiff becoming ill. While a package or a delivery might pass through multiple hands after leaving the defendant's possession, such as, for example, a delivery contractor. It could be left on a doorstep or it could be handled by multiple persons in the recipient's home. It would be difficult to establish that the item was not contaminated during all these interim events especially since it appears the virus can only last for so long on surfaces or in open air. Mm. Finally, whether it's a product case or a premises case or any other theory, causation is going to be key. And we touched on this. It's not enough to show merely that the illness followed the act. Plaintiffs are going to have to disprove other sources of infection and other theories about when the contamination arose. And the more prevalent COVID-19 becomes, the more difficult that is. Interesting. So what, what about the role of the guidance provided
0: by um, health officials, either on a state or federal level? Um, are they there because to help business owners, you know, if business owners or landlords follow the guidance to the letter, um, can they be found not liable? And does this
1: really point to the importance of making sure that you comply? Well, unfortunately, it's widely held that complying with law or industry standards is not necessarily sufficient to get out of a case. The jury may still decide that a reasonable company, and that's the standard that's going to be applied, at least in a negligence case, would have done more. But to your point, that doesn't mean compliance isn't important. Failing to comply can actually be held against the defendant. And in some cases, in certain laws and in certain jurisdictions, it can be conclusive evidence of negligence, what's called negligence per se. Also, compliance can be important evidence that a company was not negligent. One example are the New York Department of Health August 2020 guidelines for reopening. And these cover public and private facilities, including retailers. One of the guidelines is a directive to wear face coverings and regularly disinfect. Adhering to these precautions would be evidence that the retailer behaved reasonably, and the opposite would also be true. The jury could treat failing to enforce face mask wearing and not regularly disinfecting as evidence of negligence. So turning to, I guess, more
0: industry-specific questions, will pharmaceutical manufacturers or healthcare providers have liability if someone is injured from the coronavirus vaccine? And if they could not get timely access to the vaccine, could there be liability?
1: That's a good question, considering now we're seeing vaccine efforts ramping up and the question arising of who will be entitled to access this scarce resource. Well, the federal government has enacted a specific law protecting both pharmaceutical manufacturers, and healthcare providers from liability for vaccine-related injury or death. It's called the PREP Act. PREP stands for Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness. The PREP Act empowered the Department of Health and Human Services to issue a declaration immunizing covered entities and individuals from liabilities stemming from the use of countermeasures, and countermeasures includes vaccines. In March 2020, Health and Human Services, in fact, issued a declaration under PrEP. It granted immunity from liability against all tort claims that could be related to COVID-19 vaccine administration. So even if a healthcare provider decided not to vaccinate wrongly, or if an individual should have been deemed to be higher in priority, there will be no liability. Also, there's a similar law in New York um, that holds that healthcare providers and hospitals will not be responsible in malpractice or negligence lawsuits if injury or death is coronavirus related. This would include claims relating to lack of equipment, such as oxygen or ventilators, which have been in short supply. or with limited ICU space or if a hospital is full.
0: I see. Yeah, that's interesting. And in point of fact, uh, uh, Judy Abbott-Curry, partner at uh, Harris Beach and head of the medical and life sciences group, um, has just written a legal alert about the PrEP Act. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes. So if people want to learn more about what that entails, they can. I'd just like to know, what kinds of cases are you hearing about it at the bar already? Is there anything people can learn from those at this point in
1: terms of how the courts will view all this? Well, we've seen a number of cases now against cruise lines. Uh, For example, in the Northern District of California, the Archer case is pending against Carnival Corporation. The class action plaintiffs there, and they were passengers on a cruise ship, allegedly contracted COVID-19 because of the cruise line's failure to guard against the risk of infection. Illustrating the importance of notice of a specific risk, I talked about that before, the plaintiffs in Archer allege the cruise line was aware of sick people on board the ship. The Archer plaintiffs may also have an advantage in causation. Cruise ship passengers are isolated from other sources of infection. So this is gonna reduce the opportunity for the cruise line to argue that the plaintiff's infections came from other sources. Also, brought under different theories but related, we're seeing dozens of claims now against nursing homes by families of residents who died from the virus. Oh, right, right, right. Such a tragic uh,
0: set of events. So, Dan, as as the year unfolds, do you expect further clarity on the nature of these claims and their likelihood of of success or how the courts will uh, interpret the law?
1: Yes, I think we're going to see whether more cases are filed and under what theories. So we've talked about a few of those theories today, premises liability, product liability, and also claims against nursing homes. In the cases that have been filed already, as they progress, as decisions are issued, we'll also see what kinds of evidence and facts companies can best leverage in their defense. But ironically, Due to the same pandemic, we can expect these cases to move somewhat slowly, since court closures and case backlogs, as a result of COVID-19, are impacting courts nationwide. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's a catch-up that we all all have to do in a lot of different ways. So,
0: well, Dan, this is a very interesting uh, area. So, thank you very much for joining us today. If you would like to learn more um, about this area, please visit our website at www.harrisbeach.com. We'll also have uh, contact information for Dan in our show notes. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and
1: leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.